Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. First question up, I'm looking into a uh, to apply to a new job. I have two. I am considering a woman's imaging assistant and a hospital lab assistant. Which one looks better for medical school? I love these questions. Uh, to be quite honest, the lab assistant job works out better financially for the hours. Uh, and, and the hours are better too. If someone could please advise me which one looks better, I'd appreciate it. All right. Perfect, wow. perfect question. So I'll start with, I hate these questions. Like, <laughs> it's, it's the perfect question because I hate them. And, and not that it's a bad question, but I want to beat into everyone's head that everything that you do on this path, do for you. Yes. Not do for medical school admissions, right? Yes. And that's and that's the gist of it, right? It's not a bad question. I just want to make sure everyone understands you have to be you. Yeah. Um, obviously, there are things that aren't clinical, and if you spend all your time doing that and no no other time doing anything else, and you think it's going going to be going to count as clinical, well, that's kind of bad, and you should think about that. But there's nothing to say that if you take a job that's financially better, the hours are better but it doesn't necessarily tick off some of the boxes, right? And tick, tick some of the boxes that you can't go and do other things too on top of that. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Scott, what, what are your thoughts here? Well, my biggest thought is it sounds like there's going to be more patient contact in the woman's imaging assistant than there is in the hospital lab assistant job. Now, that's just a presumption on my part. I think that's something that this questioner should look at. Um, and within the context of what their experiences have been already, how many, how, many, how many clinical hours do they have? What do those look like? Um, if the reason for getting this job um, is to get you know, clinical contact, then I would say the woman's imaging assistant sounds like it's going to be more in line with that. Yep. <clears throat> the lab assistant, <clears throat> you're going to be in a hospital lab, you know, the whole time and not with maybe, any patient. I, maybe phlebotomy is part of the lab assistant. We don't yeah, know. And, and if it is, then that, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a question that I have is what's involved in each one of these and what is it, you know, what is it doing uh, for them in terms of the, 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 maybe potentially things that they're trying to address in their application. Uh, so, you know, without really knowing the whole picture, I would say it's kind of difficult to answer this question. Uh, if the hours are better and financially it's better for you, then yeah, the lab assistant sounds, sounds good because of that. But if it's not going to get you, if it's not going to help in terms of filling in gaps and stuff in your application and the woman's uh, imaging assistant would then you know there's that to consider so yeah i don't know yeah but but then piling on to that right if if financially it's better the hours are better maybe that will free you up and right and it's not clinical and it's not really helping from a clinical perspective go volunteer at hospice go volunteer yeah, in the emergency yeah, department. Yeah. now that you are in the hospital yeah. as a lab assistant correct you have That's access correct. to yeah. get into other places that will count as clinical experience absolutely and i completely agree with that yeah so lot, yeah. lots of flexibility it's not black or white and yeah. and yeah. do the one that's going to work best for you the one that you think you're going to have more fun at potentially right um and and know that just because you choose one that's that's not truly clinical doesn't mean you can't do anything else. So right, right. Bueno, uh, next question here: What pays higher dividends? All right, here so, we go. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, similar. Uh, applying as early as possible in the cycle or delaying to potentially improve your MCAT. Ooh, okay. My most recent practice test was a five oh six. 
but my MCAT prep has slow due to school and work this semester. How much of an improvement in my MCAT would justify applying later in the summer? This is a good question. Mm, yeah. So where's, so, where's diminishing returns from yeah. being a later applicant, which hurts you with rolling admissions versus having a higher MCAT score, which puts you higher up in the, the list? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, definitely it, uh, it um, the 506, it depends on, in my view, where they're applying and what's what schools they're applying to, what the types of schools. So are you questions that I would ask if I was talking to this student would be, are you applying MD and DO or are you applying just MD and that that's going to affect, you know, potentially what what the outcome might be. Um, so uh, it, it would also, I, I would also want to know more about their academic record and, you know, kind of where they are uh, with the rest of their application materials in terms of how strong of an applicant they, you know, they potentially are going to be. But to the, to the issue, I think if your, if you could affect a, a broader outcome, a better outcome, let's say a 510 or better, on the MCAT by spending another month doing it, then I would say that's worth worth delaying for. Um, uh, you know, I think especially in the in the in the COVID era, the schools are are a little bit more flexible uh, in terms of uh, timing and stuff has changed a little bit with with because of COVID, and things are delayed a little bit. And uh, so, I would say. Um, I would say a, 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 a delay, not a huge delay, but a delay of a month or so uh, to get that score and, and having, a, having a better preparation and, and per, per, potentially increasing that MCAT score would be worth it. Yeah. That'd be my thought. Yeah. But, but I mean, a 508, right? What's the ultimate goal? A 508 versus a 506, probably not going to make it. Right. Difference. Right. 515 right. versus a 506, obviously. It's Huge difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of doors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. So, right, like this person was asking sort of specifically in the arena of weighing the delay versus the better score, but just specific to the score, it's February, early February, and you've got a 506. Um, I think it's, it's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's good that you're thinking ahead, right? It's, yeah. it's important to have if-then scenarios yeah. lined up, but... Yeah. If I were you, I wouldn't give up hope, right? I mean, no one has an April, May, or June test date yet, right? Because that's happening for, I think, a couple people with accommodations and cancellations on the 5th and then the bulk of everybody else on the 17th and 18th this month. Yeah. Um, if I were this person, I'd still be thinking about trying to score a date in one of those three months um, because uh, it's. I think you're within shooting distance unless, like Ryan said, like if you've got like, you know, a 522 or bust goal, well, you're, yeah. you still might be in shooting distance, but then I would have kind of more understanding of why you're worried. Um, but your score does not improve linearly. It's going to go up or down. Um, uh, there's a blog link on blueprint.com, blueprintmcat.com. That's like, am I ready to take the MCAT? That walks you through looking at your last four or five practice tests by section score. And then looking at like, what happens if I get my best day ever? What happens if I get an average? If I got an average of how I've done on my last few practice tests, would I still take it? And yeah. that helps you strip away some of the emotion. So I strongly recommend keeping with your studying, taking another couple tests, and then deciding, I mean, you yes. can go all the way up to the silver zone deadline and still reschedule um, without a penalty. Well, you'll have to pay a penalty, but you won't have to have a cancellation on your record. So yeah. I, would, I, would, I would keep fighting the good fight. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that advice. Yeah. And that domain is blueprintprep.com. For some reason, oh. Blueprint MCAT, somebody owns it, but nothing happens. So okay. blueprintprep.com. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yep. All right. Some of our live questions here. Yeah, you can go ahead to those. All righty. Um, if I come across a COVID essay on my application, would it be appropriate to talk about my experience with having COVID? So just a clarification, a lot of the secondaries are asking questions very generically. How, how have you been impacted by COVID? Um, and, and Scott, Obviously, schools are looking 
not always looking for a specific answer, but what do you think they're potentially trying to get at with that type of question? I think they're really wanting to know things like, you know, I had uh, a shadowing of um, experience set up or I had a, you know, volunteer position uh, set up and it got smashed. And so now I can't have, you know, now I'm not able to find anything. What they're really wanting to see is, is the pandemic, how is the pandemic affecting you and how is it providing, you know, how has it, as it provided obstacles for you to overcome, yep. you know, you could talk about having COVID, but I think that's less what they're looking at looking yep. for than it is there. They're really looking for how has this affected your application? You know, the, the, yep. the ins and outs of what you're doing to get ready to apply. Yeah. So the, my take on those questions is right. Everyone has, go ahead, Rachel. Everyone has, <laughs> Hands off. Every everyone has um uh their application, has everything in their application. And the, the question marks always come down to what lens should the reviewer look at this application through? Yeah. And the, the COVID lens, specifically the, the question that they're asking is is this a lens that I need to look through? The student wasn't very affected and I can look at everything at face value. Or are you gonna tell me that? all of your shadowing, all of your clinical experience was was removed. And I'm going to take that into account when I look at how you have less than normal hours for those things. And I'm going to go, okay, but COVID. Um, or if you're not affected, you have an EMT job and that maintained was steady throughout COVID, right. then great. Right. I'm going I'm, I'm to see that you did that throughout COVID and it's not going to affect me. Right. So the, the ultimate question is, if you had COVID, how did it affect you on your pre-med journey that will help the reviewer look at your application differently? Yes. Perfect way to say it. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, you could talk about COVID if there was some effect, right? Maybe you had COVID the week before you were supposed to take the MCAT. You took it anyway, but were completely wiped out and you yeah. got a less than stellar score. Now, yeah. is that going to make up for the fact that you have a less than stellar score? Probably not because those that's obviously a big, uh, important factor in medical school admissions. But um, think, think about it in that way. Yeah, I agree. As a non-traditional student doing a do-it-yourself postback, I feel at a disadvantage compared to recent undergrads and non-trads in formal postbacks that can request committee letters. Stop there. You're not. Um, no, not required to apply. How do medical schools typically view applicants without committee letters? And am I at a disadvantage without it? I would love to do like actually quote unquote commission, like some research and go, how many institutions throughout the country have pre-health offices and how many of those pre-health offices actually write committee letters mm -hmm. and then show students that it's a small fraction of institutions where medical students are coming from right matriculating medical students are coming from that actually provide committee letters yeah and so obviously if, if there are 100 students going to medical school but only 25 of them were able to get a committee letter because their institution gave committee letters 75 other students got in without one so yeah, yeah. It's, it's a weird arbitrary thing that i have been very vocal about not liking them uh i understand why they're there but i just don't like them um so you're not at a disadvantage it is what it is in your situation that's all it is agreed completely <clears throat> All right. So next one. How does one implement military service as a med lab technologist in microbiology in my application and personal statement? Ooh, I like these questions, right? This is very similar to that first question of what's better, uh, right? Is This is a how do I leverage something that I did to make myself stand out? Yeah. What do you think, Scott? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you just talk about it in your personal statement as part of your story. And, uh, and you know, depends a little bit on kind of what you did in, you know, just like we were talking about in the previous uh, question that we had about the lab assistant, 
depends a little bit on what you did in in in, in your daily world as a as a midlife technologist and uh, in 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 the military and how long you were in the military and how long you did that. But I think it's definitely going to be a part of your story. So it's it's going to you know be in the personal statement and it's going to be as a part of your activities and your you know you're going to talk a, a lot about how important that was in terms of how you. Um, you know, how, how you prepared for getting into medical school. But I, I definitely think that this is a, you know, we have a, you know, not a small number of students that come out of the, come out of the military, either having been a medic or something related to medicine, similar to this, where uh, they, uh, and I think the medical schools really do love uh non-traditional students and, the, and they love students with military experience because it brings a lot they bring a lot to the table in terms of maturity and uh you know discipline and experience and and etc so um so i think in, in in terms of how how do you implement that i think you talk about it and you you know just as you would any other part of your story yeah. uh and you and you really make you know the the, the case that this is an important part of the journey that you've been on and, and uh, that you learned a lot and that you value uh, what your experiences were and how, how, how they were meaningful for you in, in terms of this journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the biggest asterisk on that is, is this an important part of the journey for why you want to be a physician, right? There's right, kind of two right. questions. Obviously, military service is, is valuable. It teaches you lots of great things. And, and my assumption is that's where this question is more coming from, is how do I highlight my leadership? How do I highlight these skills that I've learned versus just highlighting how it has led to you wanting to be a physician if it has right, right. if it hasn't led to you wanting to be a physician my stance is it doesn't belong in a personal statement but right. it will obviously go in your extracurricular list as right. as your job right as, yeah. your, as your career for a while yeah. So, yeah. um yeah. two very different things that that you have to ask yourself and yeah. the the book that i wrote about the personal statement has some some advice on how to tell your story and how you impacted things and how it impacted you to, to move on depending on, on what, uh, what you actually did. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Non-traditional. I'm a non-traditional pre-med in that I have been an accountant for about 15 years. Awesome. I need some more bean counters. Uh, my cumulative GPA is a 3.0, but grad program in accounting, 30 credits was 3.8. Would this be considered a GPA trend or not relevant since it was non-science? I'm taking products now and I'm aiming to have a sustained high GPA with the accounting masters adding to my trend. Mm. Good non-trad GPA question. Right, right, absolutely. He was three point but grad program is counting. <sighs> um, I think the problem here is because they're non-science, um, or it's a good thing, right? Because most likely their cumulative GPA is going to be non-science mostly too. Well, that's true. And so they're going to have a good, a good science GPA, hopefully. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm taking periods now. Sustained hygiene. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And the, you know, I, I think the point here is that you want to show that you're able to be a strong student in the classroom. Yep. And uh, and so what what this is going to be showing in terms of your grad program, as well as the uh, the uh, prereq courses that you're taking, is that you're good in the in, in inside the the non-science classroom as well as inside the science classroom and it sounds like that this is a very typical pre uh non-traditional story you know in, originally in college kind of a okay student not great uh but then kind of got everything together in, in grad school and matured and and did well and now doing well in the in the prereqs uh, with a sustained, and, and so I think the, the scenario here is that the medical schools are really going to pay a lot of attention to that post-bac GPA of the, of the science classes and that that is confirming what they see in the grad GPA. Yep. So yeah. absolutely. It's, it's actually a, a graph that, that I need to, to draw from my new application book. I, I gave this specific scenario of a 
liberal arts type undergrad major who didn't do well in undergrad, um, but then does well in a post back once they find their true career path and versus someone who was undergrad science major didn't do as well the same, right? Didn't do as well. Right. And how that kind of the, those curves look and how the science GPA is affected with all of that. Right. Um, it, it definitely is there's a benefit to not having those a, a lot of science credits and undergrad with that 3.0 because then yeah. it, overall right your cumulative gpa still won't look super fancy right yeah it's gonna so be science gpa will hopefully be three eight three nine four oh yeah yeah and that's gonna look great yeah yeah and hopefully you know you match that with a good strong mcat score and and, right. Uh, that's, that's right. I, always, I always go back to right. These are these are human beings who are reading applications, who are viewing applications. Yep. I think the far majority of people understand that most people going to college who don't want to be doctors, lawyers, whatever, don't really care about their grades. Yeah. Right? When when yeah. you go apply for a job at Google or wherever, they're not. I don't ask. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. They, they don't, don't care. Have the skills. Um, yeah. And so having a non-science major, right, if this was accounting, if, if that was their major, right, you don't have to have a 4.0 GPA to go be an accountant. And so right. human beings understand that and, and they'll understand, well, you have a 3.0, but that doesn't really reflect um, potentially your true academic capability because you didn't need to have a good GPA based on what you were studying. Right. right. That's right. That's hmm. exactly right. Interesting. Yeah. All right, let's see. I took my last chem series without lab. My first two gem courses, gen, my first two chem courses included lab. However, I took the last series at another school within the system, which had a separate course for labs solely. Do I need to start all over in my chem series to fulfill the lab portion? I've been told that I need to retake classes at my previous undergrad which is expensive and far and not at another four year in community college, which I'm currently retaking my pre courses with a C minus or lower at. I'm, I'm totally confused. <laughs> so um, my first two chem courses include lab. Those are the only two chem courses, unless we're talking about organic chem, which would be the next series. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to answer this because I don't I, I have an explanation. Yeah, I don't really understand the question. All right. So question asker, if you want to try to ask that again, uh, keep in mind the 400 character limit because you started to get a little cut off there and just concisely reword your question. We'll see if we can take you again later. Yeah. Um, in the meantime. If there's time for a second question, is it okay to reach out to deans with your transcripts and essays and ask for advice if I have not applied yet? Do they see this negatively? I don't have a mentor or someone to talk to or advise me who has background knowledge of medical admissions because I am a non-trad vet. Well, there's Dr. Scott Wright, potentially. Hello. Questions. Um, <laughs> how, how would you deal with that? Uh, I, I know there a lot of schools will have kind of rules of engagement, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Of, of how do we deal with students who are not in a cycle? How do we deal with students who are in cycle? How do we do deal with students who have been rejected or, or, or post cycle? What are your thoughts on, on those engagement rules? So I think that first of all, I think that um, most MD medical schools um, are overwhelmed with the number of applicants in in a, in a application cycle, and they some medical schools will offer a an application review after the cycle if you didn't get in, and they'll say here's what you should work on, you know, blah blah blah. Here's the weaknesses, and here's what you should work on. Uh, uh, many of the DO schools, however have admissions counselors or recruiters or whatever you want to call them that will often sit down with um, a, a pre-applicant and uh, and give them advice or, or whatever. So I think it depends a little bit on the schools that you're looking at and who you're going to approach with this. Now, Jen. Generally, what I would say for, especially for the MD schools and maybe some of the DO schools as well, is that if if I get an email as a as a director of admissions, 
uh, and it said, Hey, would you be willing to, I haven't applied yet, but, um, uh, would you be willing to uh, sit down and look at my transcripts and my essays and, and, uh, give me some you know, advice? I would say, I, I, I don't have the bandwidth for that. I can't, I can't do that. Um, you know, you need to seek out advising from your pre-med advisor. Obviously in this case, this person doesn't have a pre-med advisor, so you need to seek out you know, uh, advice from somebody else. But I, I think it's not going to be seen as negative. It's just yeah. going to be, I don't, they, they get these kinds of requests all the time, but it's just not, there, there's just not enough hours in the day to do this for, for a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, I think that, you know, unfortunately, if you don't have a mentor or somebody to talk to, then you do have to reach out. Now, now obviously we do advising like this. You can look uh, uh, at uh, com slash services uh, to see what, what we have available and, and, you know, we can definitely, uh, help you out. If that's not an option for you, then, uh, then it is a little bit, um, there's, there's one extra potential, right? Is, is that the NAAHP NAP? Yeah. Uh, you can reach out through have, them. Absolutely. So if you go to NAAHP.org, um, there is a option on there to find a, an advisor. An advisor. Yeah. Yep. So I'm trying to see. And and there are some that specialize with specialize in non-trads. Yep. And, uh, and, so. and they're not going to like sit down with you and, and review everything and give you next steps and work with you throughout the application cycle for free. But they're maybe a good potential first step for a couple minute conversation about yeah. kind of being lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of ask, right? It's again, it's not going to be negative, um, no, but, but no. it most likely will be a sorry. We don't have the bandwidth for this, but maybe I, I know here at University of Colorado, I'm pretty sure um, uh, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure we have a process where there are some people who have volunteered to to help out in these situations. So yeah. requests come in and they go out to a pool of people who have volunteered to to look at applications and if those people happen to be on the admissions committee as well, or are reviewers of applications and they've reviewed your application, they just kind of remove themselves from that process with your application. So right. it doesn't hurt to shoot your shot. Yeah. But, uh, the most likely answer for most schools is going to be no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think into to Scott's point, it's very different to see if like in the cases you mentioned where a school has resources set up versus approaching the Dean expecting him or her to personally be able to do it. I mean, just from a numbers game, guys, like there's 200 odd med schools and 40,000 applicants. So no, they they can't, they can't meet with applicants. They have they have other jobs to do. Um, but but yeah, I think poking around for those resources good, using the NAHP resources good. And yeah. then I know this doesn't apply to everyone, but I just wanna remind you guys who are non-traditional, I hear all the time, I'm non-traditional, I don't have an advisor. And sometimes I hear that from schools where I know they help alumni. Yeah. So please don't assume, and I mean, the person who's asking, I don't know, maybe you've already done that research, but please check with your school because a lot of schools, particularly the larger state schools, continue to help you for your entire life. Yep. Um, I was yep. lucky to go to one that does that. Um, so it's at least worth checking that out too. Yeah, agreed. That's a, that's a very good point. You paid them tuition already. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You own them. All right. Uh, try this one. I am heavily considering applying this cycle. Permitting my MCAT score is decent when I take it in the next few months. I do still have a few prereqs that I need to take, but have these lined up to complete before matriculation? Should I still apply or wait until next cycle based on just those missing courses? Well, it depends on what the missing courses are. So, you know, for example, I wouldn't try to take the MCAT without having taken organic chemistry or even biochemistry, especially, yeah. So I think it depends a little bit on what courses you're missing uh, as to, you know, how I would answer this question. So, yeah, I, I think the the question is, can you do you know that you can do well without those courses on the MCAT? If you can, great, take the MCAT. Yeah, the I think the the bigger, easier answer is that for the far majority of schools, you don't need their prereqs completed to be accepted only to 
matriculate. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, o- only to matriculate. So right. I, I think um, y- you can go through the process. You can be accepted, be interviewed. Yes, that's missing, correct. Quote, unquote, missing courses. Now, yeah. there are some schools that say, no, we, we need all of your classes before we'll do that. So um, just look at the schools you're applying to. Agreed. What are some ways that you can demonstrate a commitment to service? I recently made this decision to pursue medical school. I have previous experience as a CNA, but then relocated overseas for a few years. Spouse equals military. (laughs) Uh, Had kids and then COVID hit hot and heavy when we got back. So my volunteer hours and recent clinical experiences are lacking. Yeah. Um. So, you know, service can be demonstrated in a lot of different ways. I think, you know, the key to service is doing service. You know, that's what you're going to be looking for in terms of uh, that's what the med schools are going to be looking for. It's one thing to say to say I want to be, you know, involved in service activities. And as a doctor, I want to do X, Y and Z and stuff. What they're going to be looking at is what have you done in your past? And so. You know, I understand that the the context right now under the auspices of COVID are not great in terms of getting out there and doing stuff. But that's, you know, typically what they're going to be looking for is what have you done in your past and uh, what does that look like and what is your um, because I, I think often what they assume is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if you've been all about service in the past, then the chances are you're going to be about service as a, as a, as a physician uh, and, and doing things. And so uh, it's a little bit hard within the context of COVID to get out and do those service activities, but there are still things that you can do and, uh, and just find out what those things are in your area and, 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 and do them. That is it. Okay. All right. Our friend before about chemistry is ready with a pithy clarification. All right. Chemistry as a quarter system. The last quarter of my chemistry series, I did not take the lab because I took it at another school that did not offer a lecture or lab. Do I need to retake the whole chemistry series to fulfill the missed lab for the last series? Well, I I, I think that would be really an issue of your... um, uh, really an issue of your institution uh, or, or the institution where you're going to take the classes. If they're going to require you as prerequisite to reduce some stuff or whatever, then yeah. But in terms of the medical schools, they don't really care. As long as you have the the courses and the labs associated with those courses, whether you took the lab with the course or as a standalone lab later, they don't really care about that. They're looking at, have you have you done the required courses? And uh, so I, I really, if I understand kind of what you're talking about, then no, I don't think you need to go back and retake the whole series uh, to, f- to fulfill the missed miss lab. I think if you just take the, the lab wherever you want to take it, uh, the med schools really aren't going to care either way. Yeah, just get it done. Yeah, yeah, and there might be some overlap, right? So if you did fall and winter lecture and lab for quarters, but didn't do spring lecture lab. If you do a semester two lecture lab, some of it, that's going to be what you saw in your winter lab. So I guess there would be a little retake there, but I don't know why you would need to do. um, Yeah. I mean, whether it's three, 10 weeks or two, 15 weeks, eventually the question is, did you get 30 weeks? Right. 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 All right. I had a couple of tough terms, sophomore, junior year, due to personal reasons, death of a friend, family issues, etc. That dropped my grades. That includes a C in physics. However, since then, I've shown an upward trend with a cumulative 3.7, science 3.61 now in my senior year. Should I be worried? So if those are the true cumulative and not like just the trend cumulative, those are solid grades. Right. This is the, this is the whole pre-med, like you have to have a 3.9 to get into medical school. Um, kind of insecurity. Right. Those are good grades. Yeah, I think I'm a little confused though. The way they, the the way that the uh, questioner phrased it, she said he or she says. Since then, I have shown an upward yeah. trend with a. So is the 
is the more recent yeah yeah yeah. everything everything yeah yeah so i'm i'm a little confused about that if the cum is definitely the cum you know what cum means is everything Mm -hmm. then if your everything is a 3.7 then yeah there's nothing to worry about and even a science gpa of 361 that's a great science gpa i think it's competitive for medical schools absolutely Oh, the insecurities of a brain. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Been there, Absolutely. done that. <laughs> One C is not a red flag. <laughs> no. <Yep. laughs> All right. All right. I've been told that you should retake your classes at the college you took those courses at because medical schools look down on retaking them at a different school, especially at a community college. What are your thoughts on this? You actually say the opposite, don't you, Scott? Well, what I say is, so if you are, if you took a class at a university, your university, and made it, let's say you made a C and whatever, and uh, then I definitely say, do not go retake it, do not take it, retake it at a community college. Uh, that would not, that would not be a good scenario. If you can avoid it. Uh, if you can avoid it, yes. Yeah. Optimally, yeah. optimally, you would take it at another four-year institution. It doesn't have to be the same four-year institution. It just needs to be a four-year institution, a, four, a, a university setting, um, or, or a four-year college. And so, what I would say is, you know, that that's important. Now, having said that, what 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 also plays into that is where you know potentially. So, for example, let's say you took it at prestigious, rigorous University X and made a C in it. And then you go to take it at unknown state college Y, then that could potentially look awkward to to an admissions committee. Um, I think what you're looking for is you need to show that you can do the work in the classroom, but I would say it has to be in a similarly rigorous environment. Now, figuring out what that means may be difficult, but it, it, it really depends a little bit. But I, I definitely think that if you can avoid it, I, I understand that co- community colleges are cheaper and the scheduling is easier and, and all of that stuff. But if you've made substandard scores in a, in a college classroom and you want to retake those cl- classes, then I, I would say you can do it at a different school. You just want to be careful at what that school is, but I would avoid community college if at all possible Yeah, in that, in that scenario. And, and part of this is what is big picture as well, right? Is this 10 classes that you got season at the four-year university, and then you go and take the 10 classes at community college, then there's some questions like, did were you just not up to snuff at what is typically perceived as a more rigorous um, school system, right? Whether that's true or not, but that's just the perception. Right. Versus being mostly a solid student and having one class where you got a C and needing to, or C minus and needing to go retake that one class at community college. That's a different story, right? And there's always so many nuances that students, again, everyone thinks it's all black and white, community college bad, four year good, but there are so many other things. What is the, the macro kind of big picture tell with yeah. your transcript. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Let's see. Skip to this one. Is it necessary to do a post program after I graduate this semester when so far my GPA is a 352 science 328 trying to bring it up more this semester? My GPA is an upward trend in all A's and B's. I'd rather work in clinical research and gain more clinical experience for my GPA year, my gap year. Uh, Plan on applying to MDs this cycle. So the question is, uh, what does the trends look like, right? Is that 2.0 freshman year and crushing it ever since? Um, Yeah. It's it's impossible to answer with just those numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, in and of itself, just as a as a, 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 the science GPA of three point two eight is concerning, doesn't look good. And no, it's not going to look good. And I would say just 
and, and on face value, yeah, you probably need to do a post back in the sciences to to uh, to show that you can do do the hard sciences. Now, if if it's like Ryan indicated, if it's a trend, you know, if you if you had really bad freshman year in terms of some sciences, and then it's really come up quite a bit, and there's a really nice trend there, then that may change the 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 dynamic of that advice a little bit. But I think that generally speaking. You know what they're going to see is is you're a generally you know pretty strong student three three point five uh, cum, which means that your non science GPA is higher. And this is always concerning to me when I have a student who I'm advising who they seem to do great in non science classes and then struggle in science classes. And I'm like, why do you you know why are you doing well in psychology and in history and in philosophy and stuff like that or maybe your minor is philosophy and you're you're doing great in all those classes but you're struggling in the science classes and and sometimes i get i get the response from applicants who say well i just love those philosophy classes they were and i'm like well why are you doing science then it sounds like you need to go into you know humanities or whatever yeah I, I always say, right, the, the students who always talk about, I love science. So you don't have to love science to, to go to medical school. You got to be good at it, though. Yeah, you got to be good at it. You can love yep. your philosophy class more than you love your biochemistry, but you still got to be good at biochemistry. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Well, we're almost to the end here. We've got a question that got, is, gets cuts off. And I asked the question asker if they could rewrite it, but it's only been a minute. So I'm going to give you what we've got and sort of summarize. Um, basically, it's a long job description and they're looking for help understanding if it's clinical or not. Oh, okay. Um, so clinical project manager. Oh, here we go. Never mind. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I manage uh, clinical trials, phase one, phases one to three, provide training to investigator sites, write manuals that are used by the sites and sponsor and the sponsor throughout the duration of the trials. Can this be counted as research? Oh, research. As research, not clinical. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this is interesting. So I'm familiar with this because my daughter's in a clinical trial. And so we um, are very much plugged into the clinical research coordinator um the clinical project um uh at, at the investigation site and all the principal investigators and stuff um i don't i don't think this is research this this is no. yeah an I admin amazing management job and <laughs> try, yeah. i've seen the manuals that these clinical research coordinators carry around um of just all of the details that they have to be tracking um I don't think it's research because yeah, the, I don't think so the goal of research is let's ask a question, let's evaluate something, let's try to set up some experiments uh, to evaluate this question, right? The whole mm -hmm. um, scientific process. There's no scientific process here. You are a manager. Uh, it's administrative. You are going and training people to do um to carry out this research um and so your specific position i would not count that as research yeah agreed i yeah i agree with that completely i think you know it potentially could be counted as clinical if you have um if you have uh, experience with uh the physicians and or, or those conducting the trials and you have patient contact it could be considered clinical but yep. research, I don't think so. Yeah, probably not. I, I've interacted, again, just with my daughter being in a clinical trial. There have been some people from the ph pharmaceutical companies running trials that, that potentially jump into a, an office visit, but that's few and far between. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's important, great work. It's just... Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. Yeah. how it's classified not, di not discounting it at all yeah. just yeah. trying to you know and, and i think this was what the questioner was looking for is trying yeah. to figure out how do i categorize this in the application yeah. i would not categorize it as research yeah yeah all right oh here's a fun one you guys can answer quickly what is the best way to advocate for a dip in your grades? I had a few odds stacked against me and my grades suffered as a result for approximately two semesters. I at least finished my last 
semester strong and my do-it-yourself post-bac classes are going well. So, so Scott, let me kind of rephrase this uh, mm -hmm. a little bit to, to maybe help more people. At what point, uh, something that I write about in my, my personal statement book is, is bringing up red flags in a personal statement. And that's always a question is, well, mm -hmm. is this a big enough red flag? So at what point would you recommend someone mentioning like, hey, I struggled for a little bit. I just want to let you know, I know that you're going to find it and we can talk about it during the interview, hopefully. Uh, at what point do you bring that up versus just letting them see it and and hopefully the the upward trend after is going to be okay? Yeah, I don't think this is a uh, I don't think this is um, fodder for uh, the personal statement, frankly. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, this is this is stuff that you would talk about in a, in secondary application materials, depending on what the questions are. You know, often medical schools have questions with regard to you know, uh, obstacles that you've overcome or things like that, ad adversity that you've overcome. And, you know, perhaps because, you know, if the dip in the GPA, then those semesters will, will cause some sort of adversity or obstacles that you, you know, sickness or family issues or whatever, um, then you can address it then. But I don't think you know, it seemed awkward because the, the personal statement is really to tell your story about why you want to go into medicine and what that's all about and to sort of deviate from that and say, well, by the way, you know, yeah. I've got this, you know, going on with my GPA. It just would be very odd. I think there are going to be other places in the application, maybe not so much in the primary application, but in the secondary. Now, I will, you know, again, make a, you know, Kudos to the Texas Application Service. They have optional essays in the primary where you can do that, yep. where you can talk about that very thing. AMCAS does not have that. And I think ACOMAS has some some room for you to do that kind of stuff, although I don't mm -mm. No. I, I don't recall. Yeah, maybe not. But yep. the Texas Service does. So um, so but I would say outside of the Texas service, you know, you would want to really reserve that for some um for some uh, for secondary application questions. Yeah, so this is uh, maybe maybe our first disagreement, Scott. Um, uh oh. Yeah. So so I do have right in in my personal statement book, I I do talk about how to include red flags and and what uh, to potentially include. I think and and it, right, I I. I always preface it with your personal statement shouldn't turn into like your laundry list of bad things that happen. Right. Exactly. Um, but a sentence or two that just highlights like like i I'm, I'm i'm priming you before you go look at my stats right it, and it obviously depends on how a reviewer is reviewing things they look at stats first they go to the essays first whatever right uh, and there's just some recognition of like i'm sorry i struggled here's here's a sentence on why and let me move back into my my main reason for for wanting to be a physician so okay. um Again, just different strategies for, for different things, but uh, do, do what you want. The bigger question is, is it big enough to really worry about, right? Right, right. Or that score doesn't belong in your personal statement, so bad grade doesn't belong in your personal statement. Two semesters, maybe, maybe not. What does the big picture look like at the end of the day? Is it good enough GPA-wise to not be a concern? Then probably not an well, issue. and and you know what they also don't indicate is what does dip mean yeah. in your GPA trend? I mean, are we talking about a dip from a three eight to a three six? <laughs> are are <laughs> we talking about a three a six dip, yeah. to a two zero? Or you know what exactly are we talking about? So yeah. I think without a little bit more information, it's a it's 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 difficult to say. But you know I, I you know I Ryan I, I will I will say you know day in and day out you have the right to re to be wrong <laughs> um, i really like it when you guys disagree um, <laughs> I think, honestly i do and i mean i know probably there are some people in our audience who are like yeah whatever it's two opinions and some are going i need a black and white answer and you guys just gave me gray but gray exists in oh, the yeah. process right the, the things that get you in are going to vary school to school, year to year, admissions yeah. committee to admission committee, applicant pool to applicant pool. These are humans who are checking. So it's the yeah. same way that there are humans who are advising you. So, I mean, I think mostly you two agree because mostly there are established things that we've seen from helping 
not just hundreds, but thousands of students yep. over more than a decade, right? So there are a lot of pretty well-established truths, but yep. there are some maybes and some gray areas. And I think it's yep. good for applicants to remember that that's part of why we co usually come back to do your best and shoot your shot because nobody knows for sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What what would be wrong is your whole essay is about your dipping in grades. Right. right? Yes. I'll agree yes. that's wrong. It's, it's yes. not wrong maybe to talk about it. Is there maybe a preference over another? Again, that's where different opinions come into play. Yeah. So yeah. Um, one one other question, Rachel, I wanted to throw up there. Um is the one that you had answered just to just an add of clarification to this. So if I started volunteering in high school and continue to do so throughout college, should I include those hours or only those accumulated during college? All right. So in general, right, the recommendation is things that you did in high school don't include on your application. Yes. I always add an asterisk to this of if you started it in high school, continued the same thing throughout college, mm -hmm. then go ahead and put the start date and the hours on your application because it, you're, you're just showing the whole timeline. But yeah. if it's something you only did in high school, then even if it's like the most amazing thing Wonderful. ever, yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't belong in your application. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, and I'm aware of that nuance. And again, yeah. it goes back to some of that gray. Um, this had come up a week or two ago, and one of the points Scott had made was like, I think the example the person used was like, they've been knitting and they have something like fifteen hours, thousand hours of knitting because they're going back to age eight, <laughs> and then like that actually makes your two thousand hours of clinical look weird. Like, yeah. well, why are you spending so much time on knitting? And it's well, I started clinical when I was nineteen and knitting when I was yeah. eight, and like yeah. there's a very reasonable explanation for it. Yeah. But yeah. so I I do understand sometimes you do want to include that high school experience and sometimes like the optics of it actually make it make more sense yeah. to just start um, with college. Yeah. With everybody starting at the same starter mark. Right. Um, and, and I will say that, um, like for example, uh, the Texas application service, if you try to, if you, in some cases, if you try to put in a date that is before you graduated from high school, the system's not going to allow you to do that because they don't want high school stuff. Yep. So, you know, you, you may not logistically or, or technologically be able to do that, but if you can, then, you know, I, I don't disagree with, with that advice, Ryan. Yeah. There's some more great for you guys. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, come to come the to end, the of, end of an hour. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad we did this. Uh, I know it's anonymous for our folks who watch the replay, but lots of different names and faces in the mix. So I think doing this bonus session at a different time helped us get in touch with some MAP members we don't normally get to hear from. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Talk to you soon. Adios. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.